Have you ever wanted to have a fantasy expert in the palm of your hand? Or better yet, in the pocket of your khakis? Well, check it out. Now you can. It's the Fantasy Sports Radio Network app. Download it now to your phone. We promise no weird viruses, no strange tracking things. Just 24 hours a day, seven days a week of pure fantasy knowledge dropping all over your head. It's the Fantasy Sports Radio Network app. Stop being a weirdo and streaming it online. Get it on your phone. Take it with you everywhere you go. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. sure that you give us a, a look during the preseason. We'll have some free content during the preseason with preseason articles. We're also at some point during the preseason going to open up for a week or two free trial access to our customizable projections and our optimizer. Our new our new lineup optimizer is going to have all sorts of new features, including being able to you know group players, advanced stack settings, all the stuff that I use to make my lineups on a weekly basis. We're going to open up that for free during the course of the preseason so people can check it out loaded with week one projections uh, that we'll have up there for the first baselines we're really excited about that I spent most of my weekend uh, working on NFL team baseline projections and whatnot so wanted to start there but Colin we got to recap the Canadian Open because it was a great week for a lot of Daily Roto subscribers Uh, Dustin Johnson who was our cover boy came through uh, held on to that 15% win percentage he had coming into the event dominated uh, big par five scoring out there lots of big scores out there and a big score for yourself yeah it was a great week um it, it started out not so good i would i gotta say um i was talking to you guys in slack and it was like a couple hours into the event and i started to like pull up my lineups page on dk and i was like oh shit it looks like i've uh i entered the wrong csv of lineups and i noticed it because in all the three maxes i entered like this full train thousand thousand dollars of entries of probably the most egregious chalk lineup i could have it had panda in there it had keith mitchell it was like a placeholder of just full of chalk and so that was tilting that was pretty tilting and so then i was like well i i don't know what the rest of this looks like i need to figure out what happened and luckily i had what happened i had two csvs saved and one of them was like a version with an mme build and the placeholder lineup and then the other was a newer version with a tweaked MME build to try to account for weather and actually had the actual lineups I wanted to use in 3Max single entry in there. And I had uploaded the wrong lineup without any of the weather adjustments, so a lot closer to the data golf kind of projection probabilities and not the Drewby adjusted version. And hey, it worked out. I uh, ended up taking home 20, about 25K, I think it was, um, in total as far as profit. And it was my biggest week ever in DFS golf. I think I had 120K score before that. So I don't know, man. I've seen it all in DFS, but winning a GPP and coming in third in that same GPP with the wrong uploaded set of CSVs was definitely a new one for me. I think the funny thing is the weather adjustments, because the weather adjustments are what got me good as well. Um, I I did not, I was really behind last week, so I didn't start making my lineups. I usually don't make my lineups till Wednesday late at night anyway, but it was, you know, Thursday a.m. It was like two in the morning, and I was over on Windfinder, and I saw what I thought was a big edge 
towards the Thursday a.m., uh, Friday p.m. tea times. And Dustin Johnson was in that group, so I decided to make about 20% – 20 to 25% of my GPP lineups pure, uh, pure full wave stacks of that AMPM group. And that cut down my exposure on guys that I really, really liked with Keegan – and Byung-Hyun Yan, I still had a good week. Uh, I finished profitable on the week. I made like 20% on the week. But the the way the weather shifted during the event made it the exact opposite, where the Friday uh, AM groups actually had a, about a stroke, stroke and a half advantage. And I wonder, I sat there wondering throughout the weekend, man, if I had gotten the weather right on this week, what my sweats would have looked like, because I ended up having a team that finished 13th in the club twirl that was not one of those um, wave stacks, and I had some teams on the on FanDuel's Pick'em games that were up in the top 10 as well, and I just, I know that 25% of my lineups were already playing at a, a stroke disadvantage, and I was dead set on playing a lot of DJ anyway, so I don't think I would have uh, moved away from him on any weather, uh, so it was kind of a, a what-if week for me. I'm glad you were able to cash in. I'm glad, uh, shout out to some of our subscribers again, uh, Richard Matthews, Clemson Golfer, um, some other guys who had big hits during the course of the week that they were really proud of. So uh, always fun when Slack has some sweats and people are kind of enjoying uh, the, the late round finish. And it, it's fun when our, our cover boy comes through for us. Um, you wanted to mention one thing that, that while you were sweating, you mentioned there was a period of time where your lineup that won the secondary uh, $5 GPP on, on DraftKings was was going to be in the lead of the primary $5. And you at one point thought you had maybe made a, a, a mistake in in the range of, you know, $75,000 or so. <laughs> um, how did that end up coming out? And I know you've talked a lot about this on the pod with game selection being so important to you. How has it, it worked out for you playing the secondary $5 a little bit more frequently than the primary? $5? Yeah, in general, it's worked out better. This week ended up coming out about 5K ahead, and that just shows the variance associated with the, the large mega field, 100K plus. I think the $5 was still a big field. It was like twenty five or 27,000 people, um, but because it was playing there, it was able to hold on to first, and it would have dropped down to like third or fourth in the other one. So there was definitely a period of time where I wasn't feeling very good about that decision, but I don't know. It was such a weird week on my end. I would say the one thing that I did consistently across all the sets of lineups, the only thing I really tweaked was a couple of the projections. Um, the one thing that was similar was I had it set to try to have at most two of the, the sort of mega chalk players in the same lineup. So I was trying to get a lot more diversity with my DJ builds. I think I had something like 60% DJ, maybe 30% Brooks and the teams that I built, but most of the DJ builds were a little bit more contrarian. So I wasn't going to end up with like, there were like four or five or six value plays that were all chalk. I wasn't going to end up with teams that had all that chalk. And uh, Mackenzie Hughes was less than 1% owned. And he kind of bet ended up being one of the guys that finished really high that ended up separating the lineup at the top of the GPP. So as we get into this week's event in the WGC Bridgestone, I think that's another thing I'm going to be cognizant about is so there's some good chalk this week that I like, but I don't want to load up all the chalk on one team. And so I want to try to make sure that, you know, if I am going heavy ownership in some places, I'm trying to balance it out, making sure that I don't get a bunch of really chalky players all on the same team. Yeah, I certainly think some of the nuanced discussions around chalk and GPP play and, you know, fades and eating chalk and stuff. I think a lot of that, the nuanced discussions can kind of get lost with people wanting um, rules of thumb, essentially, that, hey, if a player is this owned, you fade. And I don't think it's that simple. I think a lot of times it you want to think about the overall lineup that you're building 
And sometimes you can eat chalk within a lineup and still be contrarian with that lineup's overall ownership. And there's just lots of different nuances to the discussion around how to play GPPs and, and something that is continuing to evolve as the industry goes on. Uh, good, good week for us in, in the rearview mirror, but we gotta we gotta push on and, and focus forward on the Bridgestone, the the WGC event here. Uh, obviously, no cut event, smaller field. Uh, I believe it's a 72 person field uh, in this event at the Firestone Country Club in Akron, Ohio. Before we get to the golf, I just want to mention because Akron, Ohio, I I need a platform to get these takes off, but um, with what's going on in Akron, with what LeBron James is doing right now, with building a school and guaranteeing kids opportunities to go to college and have meals taken care of and have safe pathways to and from school and extracurricular activities taken care of. Uh, I am so beyond impressed with what LeBron James has done. He is a unbelievable role model, obviously an unbelievable athlete, but um, tip my hat to somebody who's out there trying to make the world a better place in a monstrous way, uh, impacting education at the roots level. And because this event is in Akron, Ohio, I had to get that out there uh, before we turn the page to the Firestone. Yeah, I mean, definitely awesome stuff. And it's good to pe- see some of the people who have the most resources in the world putting it to, to use. And I know um, that's something that you're really passionate about, a lot of the stuff you do for Charity Water, the Wellie Maker last year, and, and things like that. It's all really good. So I've uh, never been, like, as a Boston sports fan, never been a big LeBron guy as far as rooting for him on the court. But uh, obviously everyone recommend, recognizes the talent, and the, the off-the-court stuff is something that you have to respect, even if you don't really like rooting for him on the court as he's bouncing around the different teams. Um, but I don't know. This event this this week should be pretty interesting. Definitely going to be a, a top of course, um, 7,400 yard par 70, the sixth narrowest fairways on tour last year, but was the fourth longest course on tour in par adjusted distance. So it's a par 70, but it's a, it's a long track and it's one that, um, you know, you got to be hitting the ball in the fairway. Um, you got to be hitting the ball long and you got to be dialed in with some of the mid irons as well. Only 13 Eagles on the, at the event last year. So Really limited DK scoring relative to par. It didn't play exceptionally difficult last year, but the DK scoring does have a big impact. And that one of the things that's going to do is it's going to, um, you know, require you in tournaments to have really high win probabilities and finish position points on your rosters. The difference between last year, the third highest scoring golfer, the guy who finished third and 10th was actually the same as the difference in scoring from the guy who finished 10th and 50th. So it's a big difference getting those few extra spots up top. And that's something that in the fantasy golf lineups, you're going to have to be aware of is trying to rack up some of that win probability or at least top five, top 10 probability. Yeah, and typically when we talk about these no-cut events and you talk about a higher emphasis on place points, the first thing you think of is you think of Stars and Scrubs builds. You think of, I can take more risk at the bottom end of my roster because, hey, those guys are getting four rounds guaranteed and I get a little bit more exposure to the high-end finish probabilities with guys like Dustin Johnson, uh, so on and so forth. But what's interesting about the pricing in this WGC event is, especially on DraftKings, the pricing is really... I would say uh, stretched a bit where I think the guys in the eights are guys that typically should be priced in the nines and the guys up top are priced like they correctly are. So it's a little bit like majors pricing where you do have some good plays, you know, in the low sevens, if you want to take advantage of building 
through kind of stars and scrubsier lineups, but the bottom of the field is also a little bit more stretched because a WGC event allows all these other players that don't primarily play on the PGA Tour that don't grade out perhaps quite as well uh, relative to, you know, bottom, I would say, bottom third of really strong PGA Tour events. So it's kind of this weird field thing where I feel like there's not a ton of depth to the 7K ranges where I'm really excited to play guys, which makes me kind of condense my ownership and my, my player pools around kind of the more balanced approach, which is contrary to what you'd normally think of given the fact of higher emphasis on place points and no-cut event. Um, what was your first instinct when looking at pricing? Yeah, I kind of agree that that was felt like the most normal way to do things. Um, I guess the, the hard thing is the field is small, and even the guys who are pricing the low 6Ks, like most of them have 15 to 20% odds to finish inside the top 20. So you're going to find, you know, three or four of those guys who do end up inside the top 20. And um, it, then it would just really depend what happens up top. And like if, if someone like DJ comes to play and is inside the top three that or wins the event, you know, he's, he's going to be our favorite this week again. Um, then you're going to need some of those value guys. But if one of the other guys comes through, then I think balance is going to be the way to go because it's, it's not having the winners not going to be enough, right? You're with the placement points mattering, you're going to need this and with fewer golfers in the field and more overlap in lineups, you're going to need the guy in second place, another guy inside the top five, top 10, things like that. So I don't know. It definitely sets up for an interesting week. I thought because of that, like you said, I thought DJ might be more in our optimal lineups. Doesn't look like that's the case early on. Um, but it also, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see ownership gravitate to some of those other places as well and, and reflect that. And I think it's been a struggle in the past for me with uh, the model is built so much on events that feature a cut and have a full field. So the ownership model, as far as the ownership projections, has not been quite as accurate in these no-cut events. Um, and I'll still be weighing it heavily, but I don't want to go crazy on overweighing it when I know that the, fee, the few no-cut events we've had it hasn't performed quite as well as it does in the full field events. Which those ownership projections, I mean, your your victory laps last week were not limited to just your DFS play. The ownership projections had one of their best weeks of the year, if I recall correctly, which was really helpful in, in GPPs. Unfortunately for me, um, a lot of the a lot of the chalk really crushed last week with Harold Varna the third coming through. Uh, DJ was was chalky, but not chalky enough in our opinions. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see because uh, you know chalk on a normal week when a full field, you know sometimes it's guys that are in the seven Ks that are in the ten to fifteen percent range. Um, on a smaller field, you're going to get you know baseline ownerships kind of rising. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of leverage can be created in a tighter field where you get more overlap. Um, a little bit more difficult to uh, to, to play out, uh, certainly in the ownership projections, but also in your your individual play, which I think gets back to some of the tips you had mentioned in terms of trying to manage individual exposure within the lineups, where you can take some pieces of chalk, but make sure you're you're getting at least one piece that's a little bit lower owned. I, I would say for me this week, low owned is going to be sub 10 percent. Yeah, I, low owned, I guess sub 10% makes sense. It is all kind of relative. I'm not sure you really get sub 10% on anybody that's 8K and above, but there's still, yeah. still like guys that you can find that are lower owned relative to, to their peers in that range. Um, it'll, it'll be pretty interesting. I, I don't see too many really clear value spots yet that are popping out as chalk, at least um, kind of below 7,200. So and we'll, we'll get into that range and stuff later. 
but it's going to be interesting to see where that where that comes. There are a couple more obvious spots where I think I'm guaranteeing chalk, but they're kind of in that mid range and they fit all the different types of roster builds. And um, it, it, well, the other thing I guess is like just small field. There's more duplication of lineups. We always talk the easiest way to avoid that is to leave a little bit of money on the table, but you can also be smart about that, just thinking about your macro roster construction, and even if you are playing some chalky players, just pivoting elsewhere. So I don't know. I think that's that's about it as far as macro strategy for me. Okay, let's talk about uh, course fit. It seems like, you know, looking up at the uh, the historical event index that D- Golf provides, um, it doesn't look to me like it's, you know, uh, substantially different than the tour average. Uh, it looks like the, the course is a course that's going to test your game in all areas. You know, the narrow fairways uh, plus the, the length obviously will make driving somewhat important, but it looks like, you know, in terms of where strokes gained have come from in the past, it's been a pretty balanced course on the whole. Yeah, and that, that was definitely surprising because I just remember last year with, like, Thomas Peters uh, was striping the ball kind of the first three days and e- even on uh, Sunday and then kind of just he unraveled a little bit with his – Short game, but it, it felt like a bomber-heavy leaderboard. Um, but I guess over the the longer term, it really hasn't been bomber-heavy. Uh, I do think there's probably some guys that, at least as far as contending, that you could cross off, right? If they're, you know, I think like Zach Johnson has a good track record here, but he's he's accurate, you know, so he's he's not the longest guy, but he's keeping it in play. Um, but you definitely don't want guys who are like spraying the ball around, and there are definitely some of those guys in the in the lower range that you just want to avoid. Um, at the end of the day, like the top end of this field, like most of these guys can drive the ball exceptionally well. And if they can't, they can make up with it with other places. And that's why they're rated up where they are. Let's look at some of the course history, the traditional course history here. Tiger Woods at the top of the, the course history charts, eight wins here, including his last win on the PGA Tour in 2013. Uh, Justin Rose has four top fives in the last 10 years. Rory McIlroy's had a good uh, a, a good history here. Uh, Ricky Fowler, top 10 in five of eight years here. Uh, but you also left the notes that it's worth it's worth mentioning that Hideki, who won last year, did not have good course history uh, prior to, to winning the event here last year. Neither did DJ before his win in 2016. So I think it's it's trickier on these WGC event courses to really gauge course history because, yeah, the field is always good and strong and you don't have to worry about field uh, in, uh, discrepancy issues. But the, the field size is smaller that you kind of – you know, naturally, the top golfers should always be kind of finishing up near the top 20 or so. Um, so it's it's kind of difficult for me to evaluate course history on kind of these these smaller field WGC events. Yeah, like most of the guys in our probabilities, the top end have kind of you know 45 to 50 percent top 20 odds. So if you see a string of top 20s or you see them top 20ing like half the time, it's it's not really that much better than the baseline for where their talent's at now. Um, the Tiger situation is going to be interesting this week for sure, just because he's been so dominant here in his career. And then the fact that it was his last win. And then the fact that he was in contention at the open championship and it was such a public event and the Sunday, it was just so exciting, right? Him getting up to first in the leaderboard, everyone's rooting for it. Even if you had a financial interest, otherwise you're still kind of captivated by the moment of Tiger kind of returning to, you know, greatness in the main stage and um so all of that because it happened in such a public way uh i think it's going to make him uh more owned than he really should be considering he's the third highest price guy in the field on DraftKings. yeah let's start there at the top of the pricing we've got um 
six players at 10K and above, led by Dustin Johnson at 11-7, Roy McIlroy 11-3, Tiger Woods 10-8, Justin Rose 10-7, Jordan Spieth 10-4, and Ricky Fowler 10,000. I was talking about this in Slack with some of the subscribers earlier today. It's It's been such a strange year with Tiger Woods where – you know, trying to get a projection baseline on him coming back from injury and how to evaluate those previous rounds was difficult. And then the field seems so excited to play him at high price tags, but has not been as excited to play him when he's priced in the 8,000s. And for us, you know, a data-oriented group who's looking for value and has a projection methodology, it's just confounding um, because typically we'd like to play the players at, at their lower price tags. But I know uh, very early ownership projections, as, as when whenever we pod on these, they, they are on the earlier side. But you've got Tiger as one of the most owned players in the entire field, while being the third most expensive play in the entire field. And in my opinion, you know, a guy who's priced right below him in Justin Rose has outclassed pretty much everybody but Dustin Johnson, and maybe even outclassed Dustin Johnson over the last, you know, 52 weeks on tour. Um, and Justin Rose is cheaper and going to come in at lower ownership, it looks like, in the early ownership projection. That's just fascinating. To yeah, me. I mean, it really is. Um, I, I think it's going to be, if the if they hold where it is right now, and I actually put a pretty big bump down manually on Tiger's ownership projection, and it's it's still lofty. So a lot of people are talking about him. It's going to be hard to cut through the noise, and, and especially if people MME, like how much of a stance are they going to take on him? But if it holds, it would be a pretty easy play for me to play Rose as a one-off over Tiger um, and take a bigger stance on Rose at a lower ownership and higher win probabilities, higher top 20 odds, and a slightly cheaper price. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope it holds. I, Justin Rose would be a great buying opportunity. I think his performance at the Open Championship, because he kind of backdoored that tie for second-place finish, coming down, down the back nine there, I think it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, but it like the long-term performance over the past couple of years is there as well. Only missed two cuts globally over the last couple of years. And then just the short-term performance has been so consistent, putting up top 20 and top 10 finishes. So I definitely think that um, Rose makes for a good pivot off of Tiger if the ownership projections hold. Um, Dustin is kind of the outright favorite. Um, and then I'm kind of wondering where um, the ownership will land between, you know, DJ and Rory, because I, I think I thought DJ would be popular. He's obviously the favorite. He's coming off the win. It's a course, you know, where he's won before. He's got the driving. But I started to try to put together teams. And like you said, you don't feel comfortable with the low 7K and the 6K range. And so I think that's going to leave DJ sub 20%. And I could actually see him coming in, uh, you know, sub 15% as a, a possible outcome this week, just because roster construction around him isn't easy. Yeah, that would make it very appealing if you got him sub 15% from a GPP perspective. I did want to hop on the, the Justin Rose bandwagon there with noting he has not finished outside the top 10 in an event in three months. Uh, and he's played a bunch of events. This year on in the 2018 calendar season, he has played 13 events. He has eight top 10s. Just unbelievably consistent performance, remarkable performance from Justin Rose this year. He has jumped up to Data Golf's number two golfer in the entire world in their uh, rankings, which get re-released every week, uh, and jumped up to the uh, OWGR uh, number two in the world as well. Um, within this 10K range, I think Rose is the guy that's the most interesting to me. As you mentioned, if DJ gets that ownership uh, down uh, in the in the low double digits, I'm very interested. After that, 
I'm not super excited. I mean, Spieth at low ownership is is pretty intriguing. Maybe Fowler, um, depending on where the ownership comes in. But I am so interested in the eight and some guys in the nine K range that I feel like I'm going to be a little bit underweight the 10-plus range as a whole, and it's going to force me to pick some heavier stands on fades, which would probably mean for me a fade on Tiger Woods, would probably mean for me a fade on Rory McIlroy. Um, that's just how I feel like my, my early builds are, are, are looking from an MME standpoint. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Um, Tiger and Rory would be the easier ones. Tiger would be uh, that, you know the higher price, the higher ownership. Um, I still think, you know, that if Spieth and Fowler come in kind of in, in the low teens as far as projected ownership at their probabilities, they're still in play for me. Um, I'd still play them before I'd play McElroy um, at low ownership and a higher price tag. Um, and then, like you so I, I think those are kind of all the, the places you can start the builds. I'm curious what percentage of teams will start a build with a guy above 10K. Uh, the way I have it projected now, it's almost 95% of the teams um, you know, starting up there, but that feels a little bit high, and I expect it to come down yeah. as the week goes by. And that's definitely going to leave, um, you know, some of these higher price guys in the single digits. Which for MME, then it doesn't take a big stance to get overweight on them yep. in a no cut event. Yeah, for sure. And that's when it becomes appealing if you can get low double digits or high single digits on the 10K plus guys. Those are guys um, I'm going to be more attracted to. And I I agree with you that. Uh, Rory, because the price tag would be kind of last on my list, even if the ownership kind of comes down to that group. Looking at the 9K range, we've got Henrik Stenson at the bottom, followed by Tommy Fleetwood, Francesco Molinari. Now Data Golf's number three golfer in the world, Francesco Molinari, up to OWGR number six in the world uh, after the Open Championship victory. Uh, John Rahm, Jason Day also in this range as well. And it looks like, you know, it's it's crazy. Molinari, I think every other WGC event we've played, Molinari's been in the 7Ks. He hasn't been disowned. <laughs> and now he's here at like 9,400. And, you know, we, we're projecting him for uh, decent, not outsized ownership, but decent ownership. Um, I'm still probably on Molinari. I think the course fit would seem to set up well for him, um, being, you know, a course where, you have to be accurate off the tee and long. I've noticed that Molinari's added a little distance, maybe maybe a few LBs as well this year, uh, just kind of watching Molinari. And uh, now that he's got the putter working, I mean, everything's clicking for him. Um, I don't think he'll be sneaky by any means. I think if you're looking for potential pivots in GPPs in this range, I think it's going to be the guys above him in John Rahm and Jason Day who get some of that similar treatment to the 10K plus guys where everybody below them looks so attractive from a value perspective that they might get under owned. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would be very surprised if Day gets ownership um, because it's easy to get up and um, it's easy to get down to, to Rahm or some of these other guys who at the surface, they have better course fit as well. They're going to pop more in strokes gain models that lean on off the tee approach play. And that that's not stuff that is Day's strong suit. So I think he is going to be an interesting tournament target. Um, and I can see his ownership percentage maybe going down from where it is right now still a guy that data golf really respects uh fifth in the win probabilities or top 20 probabilities at this event and makes for a nice gpp play um anytime you talk about a course that's playing really long and you know it's kind of demanding on the driver i think that's stuff where you do get interested in rom um 
and you can fit ROM or day in with another guy above 10K if you do, do want to build a little bit of a more top-heavy team. So I think those are the two kind of GPP plays off the top that I think provide decent win probabilities and uh, low ownership potentially. I could see ROM maybe getting a little bit more uh, steam as the week goes on than day. I know people don't like ROM on, on tougher courses, but... I don't think that, you know, they're talking about this one in the same, you know, tough wind and things like that, the same way that people were ahead of the Open Championship and the U.S. Open. So um, if anyone's ownership percentage comes up from the initial builds, I could see it being ROM. Within this range, we were met with, once again, uh, data, data Golf and our own nemesis, Tommy Fleetwood. Uh, Fleetwood, we, you know, Data Golf has as, you know, top... 20 golfer in the world, but I think the public perception in the DFS space is that he's a top 10 golfer in the world, and as a result, he often, for us, gets a little bit over-owned, um, and he looks like, not that he's going to carry you know, outsized ownership by any means in this range, but I think our preferences would be to play guys like Francesco Molinari or Henrik Stenson above Fleetwood, and I think that is, in general, contrarian to the field. I think the field views Fleetwood as a better golfer than those two players. Yeah, I do think the field feels that way. It's pretty easy to see why, just because like top 20 at the Masters, top 10 at the Players, second place finished at the U.S. Open, top 20, you know, finished 12th at the Open Championship. So in all these big high-profile events, Tommy Fleetwood is playing really well. And then what we don't see is like missing the cut at the the French Open, missing the or not missing the cut, 59th at the BMW. So we don't play any of those events in DFS. So Fleetwood never penalizes people, you know, other than the you know. 20 to 100 people who are playing European tour contests. So, yeah, or the or the miscut at the Omega European Masters last year. Like he, the weird thing about Fleetwood is he's been so good in all the high end events, and really has these terrible miscuts that are in his data in really weak fields. That it's like, what is going on here? And it's, I think it's frustrating for us. Uh, more than anybody, because the projection systems, as a result, treat the, punish him for those missed cuts in, in the really weak field events, um, and DFSers don't. So it's like weekly it's been a Tommy Fleetwood fade, and he's performed so well um, in strong events that's been, you know, a bit frustrating one for us. And I, I think, you know, hopefully we'll we'll see uh, some of the continued returns from guys like Molinari that we've been yeah. on. Uh, for a while, I would there. say like last week, Fleetwood definitely didn't do enough. I mean, you needed DJ, right? And you weren't really yeah. putting together yeah. DJ Fleetwood teams, so he didn't really cripple you last week. But in general, it's it's a challenging golfer because it's also those are the events you watch on TV too, and he's playing so well, yeah. he looks so good. You're like, how is this guy so terrible? All the all these other events, and it comes down to whether or not you believe a guy can really ride rise to the occasion. Whether a guy is more motivated to play well in you know the majors than he is to play well in these other events. And I think across all sports, we we try not to get into the motivation angle of things and try just to lean on a little bit more of a, you know, math-based approach and trying to, if we're teasing stuff out of the data, we're trying to tease out injuries and things like that versus a player's personal motivations. Unless Bubba Watson is playing a pink Volvic golf ball, then we can say that he's he's clearly not taking uh, the the tour seriously. Have you seen the updated? Oh gosh, I don't want to blank on the the ball manufacturer. I'm not sure which ball manufacturer commercial it is, but Bubba has a line that says, "And I would know." And I just die in that line when I see that commercial about like the quality of the ball. Obviously, a callback to Bubba's last year with Volvic. 
Um, but you mentioned other guys that you know uh, are, are Fleetwood having the ability in some people's minds to rise to the occasion. One of the golfer in the 8K range as we transition down here that struck me in that same way is Brooks Kepka, and especially I got that I got that confirmation bias last week after he struggled at the Canadian Open, missed the cut there. But the dude's been so good in majors and so good in kind of the really high end events, and just okay, you know, not not lighting the world on fire in the non majors. Um, he's 8,900. He's the most expensive golfer in the 8K range, but he's followed by Justin Thomas, Alex Noren, Paul Casey, Bubba Watson, Hideki Matsuyama, Patrick Reed, Patrick Cantlay, Zach Johnson, and Tony Finau. And the first, the the name that I think stands out to everybody when they look at this range and, and the prices, first and foremost, is all year long we've been pl- p- paying price tags for Justin Thomas that have been commensurate with the 10K plus range, and here he is down at 8,800. Um, a guy that can obviously DK score, can make a lot of birdies, a guy that flashes high end upside, and when you get four guaranteed rounds, you're usually likely to get one pretty darn good Justin Thomas round. I imagine he'll be very popular this week because of this price tag. Um, what are your thoughts on Justin Thomas this week, Colin? Yeah, he's, he's cheap, man. Uh, people, you put him right ne- next to Fowler at 10K and or 9,800 instead of Jason Day, and people are still going to play 15% Justin Thomas. So trying to figure out how much it'll go down to. We got a mid-20s right now. It wouldn't surprise me if it hits 30, 35, like in some GPPs and uh, smaller field type of stuff. Um, data golf in general has not been overwhelmingly high on Justin Thomas and still views this as a pretty egregious mispricing. I think the hard thing is he he could be, depending on how you go about roster construction, the third um, most expensive guy on your roster. He can easily be the second most expensive guy in your roster and fill out a pretty pretty darn good lineup. And so it's a little different with Tiger, I guess, up top, where it's it's a premium price tag for him. If you're even if you are buying into form, where JT, it's kind of you're getting a lot of ownership, but you're you're not paying that price tag. He doesn't have to do quite as much to pay it off. He can DK score. He doesn't have a good course history here. I'm sure that's part of what went into the the mispricing, I guess. But he did finish third in this field last year. T Green. He just had an egregious putting um, event and. Generally, JT's a above average putter on tour. And so uh, I think that the course does fit him well enough. It wouldn't shock me if someone like JT is, you know, falls into the same mold as Matsuyama before he won, where he kind of comes in with at face value, not good course history, but he's able to pull it off. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do, though. I like that with the ownership, it's who, who knows where it gets. And that's really going to have to dictate a lot of it. It seems like he's kind of a fringe, um, you know, value at 25 percent ownership where I'd still probably play him, maybe even get a little bit overweight. But if it hits like 35% or something like that, then it's going to be a much um, bigger struggle in some of the top heavy GPPs. Because like you said, you do have pivots, right? You have Brooks, you have Casey, you can, you know, pivot out of the price range entirely. So uh, I think a lot of the week's going to hinge on Justin Thomas, what you decided to do with him, and then unfortunately how the result comes through. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking similarly to JT, where like 25 and below ownership does not deter me at all. Uh, 30 and above, I start to question things a little bit. So we'll see ultimately where the ownership projection kind of settles in. Of course, Paul Casey in this range, always a data golf favorite, uh, data golf's number four ranked golfer in the world. Uh, just so consistent. The thing that strikes me about Casey is, you know, when sometimes you'll have really good golfers that leave you with disappointing performances and you're like, man, you know, DJ at the open championship, a a miscut there. That really stinks. Um, You know, Paul Casey just doesn't miss many cuts. He's missed two cuts 
in his last 38 events. Uh, during that span of those last 38 events, he's got 15 top 10s. Just a really, really solid performer. And because he doesn't have as many high-end finishes, he doesn't get rewarded in the odds to win uh, as strongly. And as a result, his price is always kind of this mid-tier range. So he always rates as a really strong value. Um, it looks like ownership will be there. But with Justin Thomas priced right there, I think Justin Thomas is more likely to get out of control than Paul Casey would be. And so I think Casey's ceiling on ownership is not nearly the same as Justin Thomas, which makes me a little bit more comfortable uh, playing him, even though the fact that Justin Thomas's volatility in a four-round no-cut event, I think, is is better favored towards actual DK scoring than Paul Casey. Yeah, and I think we didn't yeah, and I think much, but one of the hard things with chalk this week is there's kind of two ways that um, leverage benefits you in golf on most weeks. Like, half of it is by a guy missing the cut and just ejecting all of the lineups that have that player on him from contention in tournaments. And then the other half is when you get a guy who outperforms his, his price tag or outperforms a peer in the same range, and, and therefore you get the upside and the win there. Um, and you're not going to get leverage from a missed cut this week on any of these players. So that kind of takes out maybe half the benefit or you know, 30 40% of the benefit off of making a fade. And so the benefit is a little bit less. Um, a couple of the other guys at the lower end of the 8K range that I think are interesting, the, the three guys, um, or I guess four guys I want to talk about, Hideki Matsuyama, Patrick Reed, Patrick Cantlay, and Tony Finau. Um, I, I think Patrick Reed's going to come in with really low ownership. People generally don't like him, and so I think they were willing to pay a, a price tag for him at the um, Open Championship just because of his performance at the U.S. Open and the Masters. But he's not getting a lot of buzz right now. Um, you know, he had that event in Europe last week where he's yelling at the cameraman and telling him to get out of there and, you know, stop jingling change in his pocket. And I just think he's going to slip through the cracks. And I also don't think people are going to play Hideki despite his performance last year. Yeah, that's interesting. If you get those guys in the sub-10% ownership range, because the strength of the range above them with Paul Casey and Justin Thomas um, – that they're real and right below them with Tony Finau, you know, almost always a DFS favorite. You can almost always pencil him in for double digit ownership. You just might get a little bit of an ownership um, struggle in this mid tier uh, of the AK's range and possibly a really good opportunity uh, to gain some leverage on the field. Obviously data golf always pretty high on Patrick Cantley as well. View him as like a top 15 golfer in the world. It looks like early ownership projections have him pegged to a point where he's still a play um, and, and the ownership's not getting out of hand, but you're not going to get that low ownership that you might get with Reed or uh, or Hideki uh, early on. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, I agree with you. Finau's going to end up, you know, getting his fair share of ownership. Uh, the one thing I was noticing was, you know, Keegan and An had um, decent ownership last week. You know, I think they were around like 15 to 18 percent or so in, in some of the tournaments. Um, and I think one of the things that happens with the low 8K range is those guys fit multiple builds. Sometimes they can be the second and third guys on like a DJ build. And then sometimes they can be the third and fourth guys on a balanced build that starts, you know, somewhere else and grabs JT and then grabs, um, you know, can't land Finau or something like that. So all the, it seems like the 8K range is going to end up getting a decent bit of, of ownership. And I think a lot of that will gravitate towards Finau and I really I don't think it's going to go to Reed and I think that makes Reed an interesting play all right into the seven Ks we go usually this is an opportunity where you can find a lot of value and potential mispricings uh the two names that immediately stand out in the seven K range is guys that all year long you've been paying much higher price tags for 
Um, Phil Mickelson and Sergio Garcia are 7,400. They're priced along the likes of uh, Terrell Hatton, uh, Byung-Hun Ann, uh, below Thorborn Olsen, uh, below Louis Ustazen. It's strange to see Sergio Garcia and Phil Mickelson at these price tags. I think Sergio has been more deserving of this price tag with his egregious play during the course of the season. Um, but both of these guys, because of their long-term forms, are going to rate out as very strong values. And it looks like early ownership projections aren't condensing on them hard. It looks like um, early ownership projections are more in favor of a guy like Kevin Chappell, who played really well at the Open Championship, a very public event, um, kind of putted the lights out there. Colin, what are we going to do with Sergio and Phil at these price tags? I don't know, man. I've been lucky to avoid Sergio for the most part. It's been like a disaster for a year now, and I was on it for a little while, and I think I had enough and, and got off. So I haven't had too much Sergio during this downswing. Um, the crazier thing for me isn't like the the ownership, but it's also just like Data Golf doesn't have Sergio projected as that strong of a play. Um, the probability model kind of has him as the same caliber player as Terrell Haddon actually has him rated lower as far as his top 20 odds and lower than Brandon Grace, Louis Eusteisen, Webb Simpson, Matt Kuchar. And it's, I mean, it's crazy just because it's only been a, a little bit of time, like a little over a year since his Masters win, but the guy has been doing nothing. And so it's been like, it's been a long fall. Um, at, yeah, and it's not like the Masters win last year was out of nowhere. He had been playing really good golf and he played pretty darn good golf after the Masters win, but then he got he married, fell off a cliff. <laughs> It just totally fell off a cliff. Um, he's missed six of his last nine cuts. One of those made cuts was the Players' Championship, where he finished 70th. The other two made cuts were European Tour events, the Open to France, where he finished 8th, and the BMW International Open, where he finished 12th. Not, and some of those events are not good fields. Uh, the Byron Nelson, you know, the, the Canadian Open last, uh, last week, uh, the Valero Texas Open, not high-end fields that he's missed cuts in. I have him in our season-long internal DR league, and it has been a very painful year to basically have your second-round draft pick perform like a 10th-round draft pick um, in terms of earnings. So I'm, I've been particularly tortured by Sergio. I do not love the 7K range in general, so I'm going to have some. I'm just not sure where I'll land. I'm more confident in Phil than I am in Sergio. I think Phil's also, you guarantee four rounds, you know you're getting some birdies from Phil, noted DK score. So are you in on Phil over Sergio? Yeah, I think that would be a preferred play. Um, I haven't actually sat down to build teams, so like, like you said, I don't know if I'll end up with Sergio, but I, I certainly see the reason that he's priced where he is. It feels like a range that you end up with kind of like a, a, a smattering of players or at least – um, I do, and so I'd, I'd rather try to find, if I can, like a way to get up to Webb Simpson, who right now projects for a little bit lower ownership at a slightly higher price, and we've got him rated as a you know, more likely golfer to finish inside the top 20. Uh, but if you do want to build like as, I guess, star-heavy as you can, then finding any savings matters, and that's where the, the Sergio Phil thing happens. Um, Kevin Chappell is definitely, I, I understand, it kind of falls into the same thing as Tiger, and it's early in the week, so I don't really know if people are going to go all in on it, but his performance at the Open Championship, it, it came out of nowhere for the most part. He's had a pretty bad season. 
he he was having the surgery yeah. season before the Open Championship. And, so one event has totally turned the DFS's uh, attention back to him. And it, I mean, it was prime time, right? So he was there. He's getting all the attention. But we don't have the strokes gain data from the Open Championship. But I was watching, and I was like, wow, Kevin Chappell, 15-footer, just saved par. Like, Kevin Chappell, you know, 15-footer, just saved another par. 20 feet, made birdie. Like, it felt like he was making every putt. And that's not normally what we think of with Kevin Chappell. So I, if his ownership holds, I won't have any Kevin Chappell. Um, I, I can't see, like, I, you know, I guess I'm not plugged in enough early in the week to know whether it will hold or whether it will get back to a reasonable level. But this seems like a lot of buying in onto a, a one-event sample for me. Yeah, I would say uh, anywhere 15% and above on Kevin Chapel, I'm probably out entirely. Um, I'm not sure that I'd even be playing him if he was, like, reasonably owned because I don't, I don't think he projects that great unless you really buy into some huge turnaround at the Open Championship. Um, other players that project well for us in the 7K range, you mentioned Webb Simpson, Matt Kuchar, uh, Brandon Grace uh, uh, on the higher end, as well as Mark Leishman, all project pretty reasonably well. On the lower end, uh, Daniel Berger at 7,100 looks like a good value, as does Emiliano Grillo. Early ownership projections don't have a lot of attention to them. One name I did want to mention because, you know, he came off of the Open Championship after having withdrawn from the John Deere and then played well in Europe uh, the next event, ended up having, you know, the 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 loss at the end. But Bryson DeChambeau, 7,800 feels like a reasonable price tag. The ownership looks decent. I know Bryson's a guy you've talked about potentially manually adjusting in the past. Is he a guy that would be worthy of a manual adjustment for you this week? Yeah, I guess I'm, I think I'm closer to the probability model on Bryson than I am the fantasy model, and that kind of puts him right in line with Kuchar, um, and that's where he's priced, and that's actually where the ownership's projected to. So, um, yeah, those would be, if I'm building multiple teams, swapping them in and out for each other, something like that could work. Um, I, the other guys at the lower end of the range I wanted to touch on a little bit in the 7,000. So you talked about uh, Emiliano Grillo. I think his ownership's going to come up from um, where it is right now. I think his longer-term track record's been steady enough that people are going to be okay with, you know, a, a poor performance over in Europe. And then I also think Luke List is going to be one of the spots in the low 7K range that could be a spot for chalk ownership. He's, you know, fits like any of the narratives you want to build about the course being a long course, a distance course where ball striking is going to matter. Kind of fits all the course fit stuff you could want to build. So he's definitely going to pop in like models like Fantasy National. And I think his ownership is going to end up being one of sort of the chalk points. And I, I also think Grillo is going to be another one. I know we're a bit higher on Grillo in general as far as a 1v1, um, but list, it'll just come down to kind of ownership. I kind of understand, I guess, a lot of the narratives to go into that. Um, and then the last guy in the 7k range that i think we've been fond of throughout the daily roto history whether it's with data golf or whether it's with albatross and um rcb is a nice price at 7,000 and offers a lot of salary flexibility at a pretty low ownership right now so in mme you kind of get like a, a five to six percent ownership range on a lot of these guys down low and i think it's a pretty good spot to kind of spread out with maybe 15 percent of exposure on a bunch of guys yeah, I was going to say even a little bit lower than that, like more like 10% exposure on a bunch of guys where you're 2x the field on, you know, these early projected ownerships around 5%. Um, 10 to 15 sounds really good to me with guys like, you know, Berger, Grio, RCB, Kyle Stanley. Um, and then, you know, you just take a little bit of a lower position, you know, maybe on the guys, like if, if Chapel is, is uh, getting a lot of ownership, you get, you get off him. In the 6,000s, I think there's a few guys that rate as decent plays for us. Uh, Brennan Steele, Adam, Adam Hadwin uh, among the most, and then Pat Perez uh, right at the 7K range. 
Um, Ross Fisher looks like a break-even guy at 6,900. You got Honorbon Lahiri and Jonathan Vegas at 6,800 that are okay. But again, a, a, a salary spot that usually is, is a little bit on the softer side, and because it's on the softer side, makes it a little bit tougher to get those really stars and scrubsy builds that you theoretically like to in a no-cut event. Yeah, the range for me, how I handle it, I guess, is going to depend on how I handle the top end. If I end up taking some big stands and, like, overweight, like, I mean, like 50, 60, 70% ownership on any guys up top, then I could see myself spreading it more thin down in this range. Like we talked about, the the drop going from 10th in this field to 50th is not that many DraftKings points. And so if a, a star-heavy build is what's going to win, you might have to find all the savings you can. And this range is all low ownership. It's, it's all going to be kind of sub-5% as far as the ownership. And then the top 20 probabilities in these guys are all kind of like 15 to 20%. So, you know, of, of the guys that are priced below $6,000, there's 20 of them. And we'd expect four of them, you know, on average or maybe, you know, five um, to finish inside the top 20. So it's like a portfolio of players. You know, they're probably going to outperform their ownership levels, but it's hard to hone in on that one guy. And so if I was taking heavy stands up top, then I'd feel a little bit more comfortable spreading myself thin with some of these guys that do you think probably are a little bit too low owned. That makes a lot of sense to me. We did have uh, we have, you know, a few minutes left here. We did have a subscriber question. Uh, on the pod about, you know, what kind of, um, in, a, in a smaller field event, what kind of uh, player pool are you dealing with in MME? And so, you know, this is going to be a 72-player field event, and the normal PGA Tour events are like 2x that. Um, I don't think it's a straight linear equation where, you know, I just cut my player pool in half. Um, I don't tend to think of the way that I build my MME builds as if I'm trying to hit a certain number of players. I'm more looking at kind of the, the ownership distributions that I have on players and how comfortable I am. I would say in a normal full field event, I usually end up somewhere around high 40s in terms of number of players used. Um, so I will probably end up somewhere between 20 and 30, maybe lower 30s if I slightly extend out the list of players simply because it's a no-cut event and that allows for uh, a wider distribution of plays to get the opportunity to really score. Um, I don't know, Colin, you don't always MME. You're more of a three max uh, uh, king. So you coming off the MME event, uh, the big win, are you going to be MMEing this week? And do you think about player pools in that? Um, so I don't know if I've been MME this week. Or I actually wasn't last week until the secondary $5 opened up um, just because I, a lot of times I try to avoid the 100,000 person fields and I felt like the secondary $5 offered a good value, still a nice first place prize, plenty to play for and probably a weaker field of contestants because a lot of the sharps are hidden those higher higher entry fee, higher first place prize type of pools. So that's why I ended up doing it last week, but it is worth I guess noting like the European tour event where I won like 8 or 10k earlier this year was an MME event that I just kind of fired the projections blindly. And then that's kind of what happened in the CSV that I uploaded last week. So I don't know. Maybe I should be doing a little bit more than I have been. Um, as far as player pool, what I usually do in a full field event is I kind of have a threshold using the data golf top 20 probabilities where if a guy is below 15% to top 20, I just cross them off, exclude them entirely from my player pool. Then I load the pool beyond that. And um, I kind of set exposures and some guys end up dropping off from there. So if I was going to do something like that this week, there would kind of be 45 or so golfers that made my potential player pool, but I'd probably end up, you know, with closer to 35 or 40. So I guess the, the, um, 
number of players I end up with would be pretty similar this week. The only thing I'm going to be cognizant about is just how much chalk is paired with each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week's edition of Going for the Green, presented by Daily Roto. If you're catching us on any of the podcast uh, ways to listen to us, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, so on and so forth, please feel free to leave us a rating and a review. really helps uh, keeping us uh, on the on the watch tab for a lot of people looking for DFS information. Uh, we really appreciate that. helps the podcast uh, go a long way. Uh, but for myself, Drew Dinkmar, and Colin Drew, want to wish you guys the best of luck in all of your games this week. We will be back next week with another edition of Going for the Green, presented by Daily Roto.